Kim and I just want to say thank you to so many of you for um, praying for us throughout these last 10 months or so. Um, this is going to um, be one of my, I'll be going away next week and I'll leave you in the capable hands of um, preachers like John Tebeth and Jim and Phil will be sharing the word of God. But for those of you who know, I just want to say thank you so much to this church and for friends who've been praying for us. Um, through um, this year and we just want to say um, we, we thank you so much for um, your commitment to us let's just bow before God in prayer shall we Father in heaven again we pray that you will you will speak thank you for Cleveland and Karen's life Thank you for their marriage and for their love and commitment to one another. Thank you, Lord, for drawing them, choosing them, saving them, Lord. Father, we pray now, Lord, that as we just open your word together, Lord, we pray that you might just speak again, that you might encourage us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I've entitled this message 3000. It's a funny title for a message. Reminded me of a, a film called 300. And um, this film 300 was about 300 Spartans who um, fought a fight against a Persian empire. 300 took on a crowd. And I thought to myself, well, I'm going to name this message today 3,000, and why? Well, because in the Bible, it says this in our Bible reading, this verse here. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000 people. And I thought to myself, how come so many got baptized on one day? What was it that made 3,000 people change direction? What was it that moved them emotionally? What was it that moved them intellectually? What was it that moved their hearts? What was it that moved them physically to get baptized? 3,000 people on one day were added to the church. I thought it was quite amazing. And that question, why were there 3,000? What made them? Is a question that needs to be answered. And so I've got four things that I want to say briefly. And after I said these four things, we're going to have the baptism um, this morning or this afternoon. Or this evening, if it goes on too long. <laughs> four things, then, why 3,000? Got baptized. The first thing is Jesus' miracles. This is what Peter says. He, he, he's speaking. He says, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Peter on that day stood up on a crowd. I don't know how many were there listening to him. Before that, he was a man that, were, that was denying Jesus. If you remember about maybe 
A month ago or so, he was denying he ever knew him. But something happened between that time and now, which caused him to stood up, stand up, and to say something. And he turns around and he says, listen, you all are aware of this person, Jesus of Nazareth. You all are aware of him, he says. He didn't teach in secret. He didn't do any miracles behind closed doors. He didn't do a a sign in another country. When Peter was speaking to the crowd in Jerusalem, he said to them, you all know what Jesus Christ did because you saw what he did. And he was accredited by God, by miracles, wonders, and signs. Let me just hold you on this one word, signs. He uses this word signs here. You see, a sign often points you to something else. Some of you might be going on a holiday and you might see this sign. That's the sign you hope to see. You might not be happy to see you're in England and it's raining, but um, that's the sign you want to see to the beach. Now, if you see this sign, I heard a preacher speaking on this, because Alex, and he said, if you see that sign to the beach, and you sat down and you took, off, took out your, your, your deck chair and you, you got your suntan lotion and you sat down by the sign, you're not at the beach. You're only at the sign. But the sign is important because the sign points you to where you want to go. And so Peter stands up and he preaches and he says, you know, Jesus was accredited to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. You see, the signs were very important. The signs were pointing people to who he really was. That is why the signs were important. The miracles there and the wonders there, they weren't there to just to entertain people. People like to be entertained. They like to have a miracle worker around so they can be entertained. But Jesus didn't do anything to entertain anyone. What Jesus was doing was that he was pointing to who he really was by the signs. And so when John was writing his book, the Gospel of John, John writes, and he, and he says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the signs was pointing to who Jesus was. Who was Jesus? He was the Messiah, the Son of God. In fact, what the Bible, the Jewish writing, when, they, when the Jews write the Son, what they were saying, that Jesus was equal to God. Now we see Jesus being equal to God all through the New Testament. There was a question that was put in the Gospel Somebody says, why does this fellow, speaking about Jesus, why does this fellow like, speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're right. Only God can forgive sins. But Jesus steps on the platform and he says, son, your sins 
are forgiven. Why? Because he is one with God. Another thing happened. A blind man. He had his sight restored. And the blind man said, nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. Nobody has ever heard it. And you go into the Old Testament, and when you read the Old Testament, you hear God speaking, and God said, the Lord said to him, who gave man, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, the Lord was able to do that, but when you come into the New Testament, you see Jesus steps on the platform, and he says, open your blind eyes. Why? Because Jesus is one with God. Nobody has heard of a man being raised from the dead. But I want to tell you, when Jesus was on earth, we read in John's gospel, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the Bible says the dead man Can you believe that? The dead man. How is that possible? It's possible because the signs, the miracles, was not there to entertain people. Was not there to give people an hour of laughter and fun. No, the signs and the miracles was to point directly to Jesus and say, this one is the Christ. He is the same as God himself. That is why the miracles were so important. And when Peter stood up on that day, when he began to preach, he turns around and he says to the people listening to them, he said, listen, this Jesus that you crucified was actually the one who was accredited by God. And his signs, his miracles, was pointing to the fact that he was no ordinary man. And when they heard that, That was one of the reasons why 3,000 people on that day, when they heard that, got baptized because of Jesus' miracles. Let's move on. Because not only was Jesus' miracles there, Peter is carrying on preaching, and he's speaking, and he turns around and he speaks about the death. He said, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan, and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, there was many people that was crucified in Jerusalem. Many people. The Romans crucified hundreds of people, thousands of people. But there was one crucifixion that shook the whole of Jerusalem. Literally. There was one crucifixion that caused the sun to go dark for three hours. There was one crucifixion that caused a Roman centurion to look at the cross and say, surely this one was a son of God. One crucifixion out of thousands in Jerusalem that changed people's thoughts and minds. Now, Peter makes it very clear that God knew all about it. As Cleveland rightly said in his testimony, God knew all about it. What's going to happen to Jesus? I preached this a couple of Sundays ago. Jesus knew, listen, he wasn't a victim. He knew 
that he was going to Jerusalem. And he knew that he was going to be crucified, but he went anyway. And here, I, Peter really lays it heavy on. Look what he says. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Listen to this. And he says, and you, and you were the help of wicked men. Now, I, I stop and I think to myself, these people in Jerusalem, these men and women in Jerusalem, they probably were thinking to themselves, hold on, I wasn't at Jerusalem 40 days ago. I was somewhere else. I was, I was, I was miles away. I wasn't even in Jerusalem. How can you turn around and say that I was the one who put Jesus on the cross? I wasn't even there. What Peter was saying was something more serious. He was saying, yes, you wasn't there. You didn't actually pick up the nail. You didn't actually pick up a hammer. No, you didn't actually do that. But it was your sin that caused him to go to the cross. Your rebellion against God. Your rejection of his plans and his purposes. Your hatred towards his son. It was all of these things that caused Jesus to go to the cross. Your sin placed Jesus on the cross. That's what Peter was saying to the crowd. They were saying, hold on, we were only in Jerusalem for two weeks. We weren't around when he died. But Paul Peter is saying, no, 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 no. You're just as guilty as the Roman soldiers who took up a nail. It was your sin that had the nail in their hand. It was your sin that had the hammer in the hand. It was your rebellion that took the crown of thorns and placed it upon his head. Your sin, you are guilty. Just like the Romans were. You know, there's a law that's been out for a while now. You may not know it, but it's called joint enterprise. Some of you might hear of that. I think Colin nodding his head, a lot of young people get caught up in this new law called joint enterprise. What it means? Well, it means that you can be convicted for murder or for robbery if you were among the young boys or girls who were there. There was a story of a young boy who was in the back of a car. He didn't know that he was going to be um, amongst um, a crime, but he got in the back of a car, three, four boys drove to a chip shop, three of them got out, went into a chip shop, and there they stabbed a young boy to death. When the trial went into court, all four boys were convicted of murder. This joint enterprise is not a brilliant law, and I don't agree with it totally myself, but you can understand what the courts are trying to do. The courts are trying to say that if you were even in the vicinity with a group of boys or girls, if you were even in the group that may have grabbed somebody and even though you were standing behind and you didn't do anything, but somebody put a knife in, somebody stole something and you just ran away and the police are saying and the, the criminal justice system are saying you are just as guilty as everyone else. That's what joint enterprise means. We may not agree with it, but I want to say something here. 
when it comes to putting Jesus on the cross, we are all joint enterprise. All of us played our part in putting Christ on the cross. You say, who, me? Hey, I come from a decent family. I, I was raised to respect people and respect my elders and to do the right thing. How do you mean that I'm guilty of doing that? The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's not just the guys in prison who put a knife in or the person on the street who did nothing. The Bible says all of us are guilty. And what put Jesus on the cross was a sin men and women. There's a song that I like, that I want James, just to raise your voice, James, just to listen to this. That's why 3,000 people on that day, 3,000 people heard that message. 3,000 people heard that it was their sin that nailed Jesus on the cross. And 3,000 on that day got baptized. Let's move on. Because Jesus' resurrection is spoken as well. Peter moves on from the crucifixion and the death. And he moves on to his resurrection. Look what he says here. He says, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. The Bible says, Peter's preaching, he says that God raised him from the dead. Why? Because it was impossible for death to lay hold of him and keep him down. I ask myself, why was it impossible for death to lay hold of him? I'll tell you why. Two reasons why. Two Bible reasons why. One in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. Both are the beginning of books. The beginning of Genesis will show you why death couldn't hold it. Look what it says in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. First four words. The first four words in the Bible. In the beginning, God. Before there was even life, God was there. Never mind death. Before there was even life, there was God in the beginning. 
So let's move on to the New Testament because we come on to the New Testament. And sometimes when you, the New Testament speak about Jesus, sometimes it calls him the word. And so we come into the New Testament now and, and, and John picks up his pen and he's going to begin his gospel and he's going to write. And he says, what am I going to put down? What are the first words I'm going to put down in my gospel? And so he writes these words. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He, that is Jesus, was with God in the beginning. So while Jesus was with God, even before life was created, even before death was even thought about, Jesus was with God in the beginning. And so when he died on that cross, death had no hold on him. Death had no claim upon him. Why? Because he was in the beginning life. That's why death could not lay hold of him. And so when death tried to keep him in the tomb, Peter cries out and says, it was impossible for death to lay hold of him. Praise be to God. He's alive. Praise God. The Peter's preaching. And he turns around and he says, not only that, not only is it impossible for death to hold him, he goes, but God raised this Jesus to life. And guess what? We are all witnesses. I want to tell you something. I saw him when he was alive. I saw him on the cross. I saw him in the tomb. And I saw him outside the tomb. I saw him for 40 days. And I am a witness, says Peter. And not only am I a witness, but all of those men and women who saw him, they're all witnesses, not to the supposition and to the idea. No, no, no. We are witnesses to the fact that Jesus is alive. And so he's preaching. And as he preaches, this message comes to its conclusion. And he turns around, therefore... Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, who is one with God. God has made this Jesus, who is one with the Father. God has made this Jesus, who you crucified. Your sin nailed him to the cross. You're guilty, just as the Roman soldiers were guilty, just like the religious leaders were guilty. You're guilty as well, because your sin was laid upon him on that cross. This Jesus, who you crucified, God has made both Lord and Messiah. Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard that message on that day, 3,000 people turned around and said, my days, I'm going to, I'm going to be baptized. 3,000 stepped up on that day. When Peter preached that message. And so finally, as I close, there's an invitation. 3,000 said something. There's an invitation. Look what the word of God says. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, 
Sir, brothers, what shall we do? Brothers, what shall we do? Peter was preaching, but I want to tell you, it wasn't just Peter preaching, something else was going on. Cleveland mentioned a little bit about it in his testimony. The Holy Spirit was working on that day. The Holy Spirit didn't leave Peter to preach by himself. No, he was a weak man. You know something about Peter, don't you? He was a weak man. He was a coward. But somehow he stepped up from the stage and and the Holy Spirit got a hold of him. And he began to preach and, and speak with authority and power. And as he began to preach and speak, something of the Spirit of God came upon the people. And the message somehow caused their hearts to be opened. In fact, the Bible says they were cut to the heart because the Holy Spirit was at work bringing conviction. But not only bringing conviction, but bringing solution. And they said, what must we do? What a question. This isn't a question just for the men and women of 2,000 years ago. What must we do? It wasn't just a question for people standing around the temples in Jerusalem. What must we do? It wasn't for those all the way back in time. No, this question, what must we do, should be a question on everybody's lips. This question should be on the lips of politicians. What must we do? This question should be on the lips of those even begging on our streets today. What shall we do? This question should be in every church, preached on every Sunday morning. Brothers, what shall we do? That was the question. And Peter turns around and he gives them an answer. Didn't leave them hanging. He replied, repent and be baptized. When he says repent, he turned around and he's saying, you know what? You need to change your thinking. I like the term. Someone, I think it was Ez, said this to me the other day. He said, you know what people got? They got stinking thinking. Stinking thinking. And when God says repent, he said, you need to turn from your stinking thinking. All your thoughts your way of life, the thing that you think is great, you need to change your thinking and begin to change and to think the way God wants you to think. And so when Peter turns around and he says, listen, you need to repent. And when you change your thinking, come and be baptized. Because when you change your thinking, then God will begin to forgive you for your sins. When you change your thinking, God will begin to cleanse you and wash you and make you new and make you different. The Bible says, whoever's in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. He will come and he will change you. Once your thinking 
once you turn away from thinking the way you used to think and you say, Lord, change my thoughts. It's so foul and it's so full of rebellion against you. Lord, change my thinking. And when the Lord does a work in you, he forgives you of your sins, cleanses you from every stain. And on that day, the Bible turns around and says, you know what? That message was heard. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 was added to the church that day. Praise God. We're going to add two more to that figure of 3,000. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. 3,000 was added to the church. Why? Because they saw the miracles. And the miracles pointed somewhere there were signs they want to entertain me but it was a point to who Jesus was they not only saw the miracles but they saw the the fact that he died and they realized that it was their sin that held him on the cross but not only was he dead on that cross but he went into the tomb but the bible says it was impossible for death to lay hold of him but why because he is God in the tomb How can death hold him when he was even there before life began? No. He was released, raised from the dead. And now Jesus gives you the invitation. And he says, repent. Change your thinking. Wherever you think before you were Christians, stinking thinking anyway. Change your thoughts. Change your thinking. Change your direction. Turn around and say, Lord, I have loved the things that you hated so long. I've laid hold of the things that will corrupt me. Cleveland spoke about going to Hollywood where, oh my days, we know some of the things that go on in Hollywood you don't want to know about. He felt that if he was in that situation, he would be dragged down low. Change You're thinking, you might want to go this way, but now I want to go God's way. I want to do what the Lord is telling me what to do. I want to open my heart to him because I know that he loves me so much that he laid down his life for me. Because you laid down your life for me, Lord, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to repent, change my thinking, and I'm going to be baptized. And on that day, what a glorious day. I'm so glad there was more than Peter doing the baptism. Can you just imagine if Peter was on his own doing the baptism? 3,000? My days. I'm so glad he didn't have a little pool like that. You can't get 3,000 in that pool. The water would be gone. They went to the sea and baptized men and women. And when they came out, Peter says, you will receive not only forgiveness, but you will receive the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that enabled Peter to preach. The same spirit that enabled the people to understand. The same spirit that I have been blessed to have upon my ministry this morning. The same spirit is there available to every single person here today. You will receive the spirit of the living God. And that will cause you to change your thinking and to change your life into a way that will please the living God. Let's pray.
Holy Father, I thank you that the same Holy Spirit that Peter had helped him to preach. I need him, Lord. We need him to be upon this church. Lord, I know there's not 3,000 here today, but oh God Almighty, how I pray that heaven will rejoice over one sinner that repents. Heaven will rejoice over men and women turning away from their old way of life and say, no more. I'm not giving the devil another day. I'm going to turn from my sin and lay hold to Christ. Father, please, we pray, work wonderfully, work powerfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.